none. Now I'll invite um, Mandy Trench for the Bible reading. Good morning, everyone. Before we read God's word, let us pray again. Dear Lord, thank you for your written word and the mighty truths it contains. We pray that in the power of your Holy Spirit, you would open our hearts and minds to the truths that you wish us to see. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Today's scripture reading is taken from 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 to 2. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You're muted. Yep, myself. Yep. Can you hear me? Yes, we can. Okay, good. Thank you. Right. Good morning, church. The Lord be with you. Well, I'm encouraged that you are able to join us on Zoom for worship. My prayer is that as you listen to God's word and obey God's word, the Lord will continue to lift you up and be a source of comfort and strength to you. Whatever difficulties we are facing, know that these hardships are tests to produce godly character in us. They are meant to teach us. The difficulties are meant to teach us to keep trusting in the Lord for help. For God knows our situation and he knows what we need. So the Lord Jesus Christ tells us to be faithful in the midst of trouble and he will give us eternal life as the victor's crown. And so we are to persevere in the faith even as we see our society becoming more hostile to Christians in the midst of the pandemic. Uh, you may have heard about Christians being uh, censured for, by their professional bodies for publicly expressing their belief in biblical truths. You see, our opponents will do everything possible to shame us into silence when we disagree with societies position on the sanctity of life, the position on sexuality and on marriage. So already new laws are being passed to curb religious freedom and free speech because our moral teachings on these subjects are considered to be harmful and dangerous. And Christians are now the bad guys. We are accused of being self-righteous, we are bigots and we are extremists. And as our culture becomes less tolerant of our beliefs and practices, it is not hard to understand why society is keen to erase any trace of Christian heritage from the history of our nation. So things will get worse <clears throat> and we need to be prepared and we will not be afraid. So how do we prepare for the worst? But one way is to be assured of who we are in Christ and to know 
our final destiny. And this is where the Apostle Peter, the, his two letters to the early Christians will be helpful for us. And in his first letter, Peter writes with a pastoral heart to encourage Christians in the first century to continue to do good even when they were about to face a fresh outbreak of persecution against them. And Peter also writes to reassure them that their suffering will only be for a little while, but the glory they gain will be for eternity. So Peter's letter is relevant to us today because Christians today are facing increasing hostility and censorship. And as we start a new sermon series on Peter's first letter, my prayer is that you will be encouraged in your faith and that you will be reassured that it is totally worth living for Jesus. Now the world may say we are on the wrong side of history, but be assured that we will be on the right side of eternity. So if you have your Bible with you, uh, please keep it open to 1 Peter chapter 1. Now we will begin by looking at the first two verses. Now these verses are loaded with rich meaning for our Christian identity and for the Christian blessings. They remind us of who we really are in Christ Jesus. And they point us to worship the triune God whose sovereign plan and purposes will never fail, but will always come to pass. So as is the custom of his day, Peter introduces the letter by first making himself known as the author of the letter. He writes, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, Peter identifies himself as an apostle. Now, today there are pastors who wrongly call themselves apostles. They are ignoring the scriptural teaching and the testimony of nearly 2,000 years of church history that the apostles belong to the New Testament time. So there are no apostles today. Now, the early Christians knew who the apostles were because scripture has laid out criteria for an apostle. And they knew that Peter was one of the 12 apostles. Peter was an eyewitness of Jesus. He had spent three years of ministry with Jesus after Jesus called him to change his career from a fisherman to a fisher of men. So Peter was the first to confess that Jesus is the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus told him that he would be Peter, the rock on which Jesus would build his church. Yet Peter objected to Jesus going to the cross and he denied Jesus three times. But the resurrected Jesus restored Peter and gave Peter the charge to feed his sheep in addition to the task of being a fisher of men. So Peter did not disappoint. We learned in our study of the book of Acts that at Pentecost, Peter preached the gospel and 3,000 believed. And he fed Jesus' sheep in the infant uh, church through the apostolic teaching 
of the faith. But Peter taught us that there is a cost to discipleship. He was beaten and jailed for obeying God rather than the Sanhedrin. And he would eventually follow Jesus in the manner of his death. Although tradition has it that Peter was crucified upside down. <clears throat> so as an apostle of Jesus Christ, Peter is accustomed to suffering. And he is now writing to Christians who would soon be experiencing persecution. And with a pastor's heart, Peter wants to encourage the Christians to face the testing of their faith with their hope fixed on Jesus Christ. So who are the Christians? Who are these Christians that Peter is writing to? Well, verse 1 says that Peter is writing to God's elect, exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Now these provinces are all in what is today the country of Turkey. There is a minority of Jewish believers in these churches, but the majority of the believers are Gentiles who have been converted from a pagan background. And this describes most of us today because we or our ancestors um, have come from an unbelieving background. And by the grace of God, we are today Christians. So Peter is addressing us today as much as he was addressing the believers in his time. And Peter uses two terms to refer to all Christians. One is that Christians are God's, are God's elect. And two, Christians are the scattered exiles. Now, scattered exiles uh, is a term that describes the Jews after the Assyrian and Babylonian uh, captivity. Uh, the Jews were scattered as strangers throughout the Mediterranean region, far away from their homeland. And Peter applies the same term to Christians to remind us today that we too are strangers scattered throughout this world. We don't belong here in this world. As an old hymn reminds us, this world is not our home. We are just passing through. Yes, we have another country to return to. Our citizenship is in heaven, and we are pilgrims on our way to the city of God in a new heaven and the new earth. But that does not mean that we are to neglect our duties in this world. Like what the prophet Jeremiah told the Jews in the Babylonian exile, uh, we Christians are to be responsible people in our society. Uh, we are to be good neighbors. And we are to contribute to the flourishing of our society. And while we enjoy the benefits of material comfort, uh, we will not cling to the material things of this world or be enslaved by them. Instead, we will hold on to material things loosely since we are only stewards. And therefore, we will be generous to share our material things. We will be generous to share our wealth with the needy and the poor. 
we will also be careful with our lifestyle. We are not to be driven by selfish ambition. Uh, we are not to be driven by greed. Uh, instead, we are to be driven by love. Remember, we are Christ's ambassadors. And we are to model Christ's love. And we are also to be Christ's witnesses. <clears throat> and we are to be witnesses even to the ends of the earth. And in God's providence, this has been achieved through persecution and migration. Now, this, these two phenomena have been instrumental in spreading the gospel worldwide since the beginning of the early church in Jerusalem, uh, which we recently learned about in our study of the book of Acts. So scattered exiles uh, is a very appropriate term for Christians. But one day, Jesus will return and he will gather all the exiles from the four corners of the world and bring them home in a new heaven and a new earth. And as, as exiles, we look forward to Jesus' second coming when we will be finally home in a new creation. And we can be confident of this final destination because Peter reminds us that all Christians are God's elect. And as God's elect, we have been chosen for salvation in the new creation. We have been chosen for salvation in the new creation. Now, when we talk about God's, God choosing us, uh, that we are God's elect, uh, we invariably bring up the doctrine of predestination. Now, as the word implies, predestination says that our salvation, our final destination in the new heaven and the new earth has already been decided beforehand in the distant past, even before we are born. And the Bible teaches us that God in his sovereignty, even before the creation of this world, elects some for salvation, but not others. And as Peter puts it in uh, verse 2, he says that we Christians are God's elect, and we have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Now, the doctrine of predestination has unfortunately caused much controversy when it should be a comfort to Christians. And there are two issues in the doctrine that Christians have disagreed over. The first is the issue of God's fairness. Is if God chooses some for salvation but not others, isn't God being unfair? And on a human level of thinking, it seems a legitimate question. But the Bible's response is this. God is not unfair at all. God is like a potter. And the potter has the right to make out of the same lump of clay different pieces of pottery for different purposes. 
And so in the same way, God is our creator and God has the sovereign right to choose to save some and not others. And those he chooses to save receives his mercy in that Christ has paid the punishment of their sins. And they therefore are saved from God's judgment. But those who are not chosen, they will receive God's justice in that they will rightly receive the punishment for their own sins. So if you look at it that way, there is actually no injustice on God's part. God is never unfair. Now, the second point of disagreement in this doctrine of predestination is this. What is the basis on which God chooses those whom he will save? What is the basis on which God chooses those whom he will save? Well, the answer seems obvious in verse 2. It says that we are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. So God elects people <clears throat> according to his foreknowledge. But Christians disagree on what God's foreknowledge is. So one group says that God's foreknowledge is his prior knowledge of the future. God knows what will happen tomorrow, and that is true. And so when God looks down the corridor of time, he foresees who will have faith to believe the gospel and who will not. And those he foresees who will have faith, God then chooses them to be his elect. So is this how you understand predestination? If so, you subscribe to what is known as conditional election. Conditional election. It is called conditional election because faith is the required condition of your election. And you would say, God has elected me because I have faith. But there is a problem with this view. <clears throat> Because this view presupposes that you, as a fallen human being, have faith of your own to believe the gospel. Now, the Bible says that fallen human beings have no natural ability to believe the gospel. The Bible describes fallen, sinful human beings as dead, spiritually speaking, dead spiritually and spiritually dead people cannot have saving faith. So we come to the alternative view, the alternative view to a conditional election. <clears throat> and it is of course called unconditional election. So you have conditional election and unconditional election. Now unconditional election means that God chooses us Having, uh, God chooses us without having us to meet any condition. 
There is nothing in us and nothing we do that will make God choose us. See, God does not choose us because we are better people or because we are more righteous or morally upright or we are more intelligent. No. God chooses us regardless of any condition. And He chooses us out of His free will, out of His good pleasure to show mercy on whom He wants to show mercy. <clears throat> and when He chooses some, he gives them the saving faith to believe the gospel. And so we would say, I have faith because God has elected me. So you can see that the two different uh, situations, the conditional election, you will say, God has elected me because I have faith. Unconditional election, if you believe in that, then you would say, I have faith because God has elected me. Now, the unconditional election is the view taught in Reformed theology. And as TGCC subscribes to the Reformed theology, uh, we want to be saying, I owe my faith to my election. Now, when we say this, we give all praise and glory to God for our salvation. And we see God's foreknowledge, not as God's advanced information about our faith. Rather, we will define God's knowledge to mean that even before they are born, God has set his knowledge and God has set his love on those he chooses to save. And so as fallen human beings, we contribute nothing to our salvation. Even the faith to believe is a gift of God. And so we have no grounds, no grounds whatsoever to boast about our election. Instead, we ought to be deeply grateful and we ought to be deeply humble because our salvation is entirely the work of God. And indeed, Peter tells us that all three persons of the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, all three persons are actively involved in bringing about our salvation. Look at verse 2 again. It says, uh, Christians who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. So all three members of the Trinity are involved, actively involved in our salvation. So what Peter is saying in this verse is this. He is giving us the logical order of the work of the triune God in securing our salvation. 
So we have God, the Father. He plans the salvation of his people. He elects them before the creation of the world. Then God, the Spirit, brings about the new birth in the elect, giving them the faith to believe and the power to live holy lives so that they are obedient to Jesus Christ, God the Son. And Jesus is worthy of our obedience because he has redeemed the elect by the sprinkling of his blood. So Peter says that Christians have been sprinkled with the Christ, uh, with the blood of Christ. And to understand what Peter means, we need to go back to the Old Testament. Now at Mount Sinai, after Israel came out of Egypt, God made a covenant with his people. Uh, Moses was to offer an animal sacrifice and half of the animal's blood is splashed on the altar to symbolize the forgiveness of the people's sin. The other half is sprinkled on the people to symbolize that the people now belong to God and they are bound by the covenant to obey God. And so we see Peter using this Old Testament imagery to tell us that Christ shed his blood to pay the penalty of our sins. Our sins are therefore forgiven and we are reconciled to God. Christ shed his blood to also purchase us for God. So we now belong to God and we are now bound in a new covenant to obey Christ. So this morning, if you are unsure whether you are among God's elect, ask yourself, have you been obedient to Jesus? Have you been following his command? Now, if you have been following Jesus, then you know you are among God's elect. And two good things will happen in your life. One, you will grow in grace. And two, your life will be marked by peace that the world cannot give. And so Peter tells us this in the salutation as he ends the introduction of his letter. He says, grace and peace be yours in abundance. Now we often understand grace as God's favor that we do not deserve but that which we receive at our conversion. And so we say, we are saved by God's grace. And that is very true. But grace is more than God's undeserved favor. Grace is also God's power at work in our lives. And God's power in our lives will help us overcome temptation. God's power will help us win the fight against sin. And it will change our heart to fear the Lord and not turn away from Him. 
And with God's grace, we will persevere to the end, even in the face of difficulties. And our eternal security is therefore assured. And as the popular hymn tells us, the grace that found us when we were lost and blind is the same grace that will lead us home. And so as we obey Jesus, God will give us grace in abundance to last a lifetime. And he will also give us peace in abundance. And this peace is not a political peace. It is not a peace that the world can give. Rather, it is the peace that comes when our sins are forgiven and when we are reconciled to God. It is the peace that replaces the guilt and the shame of our brokenness. It is the peace that comes to us where we know we are deeply loved by God. It is the peace that calms our heart and prevents us from being anxious when things do not go well in our lives. And it is the peace that overcomes the fear of death. For death will mean the end of our exile. And as God's elect, we will finally arrive home and see Jesus face to face. And God will fill us with eternal joy and pleasures in his presence. Let us pray. Sovereign God, we thank you that you are the God who saves. And in your great wisdom, the Father elects us, the Son redeems us, and the Holy Spirit gives us new life. So by the power of your Spirit, please grant us obedience to Jesus Christ, that we may live truly as your people. May we always give you the glory you deserve. And when we think of your grace and your mercy towards us, we are deeply repentant of our sins, and we are ever grateful for your salvation in Christ. As we rest secure in our new identity in Christ, please produce in us a deep humility and produce in us a deep reverence for you as we worship you in spirit and in truth. And may you grant us peace as we continue to live through this lockdown, trusting in you to provide us with all our needs and sustain us in this uncertain time. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.